Chapter Twenty Five of the Uncommercial Traveller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Uncommercial Traveller by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty Five The Boiled Beef of New England. The shabbiness of our English capital, as compared with Paris, Bordeaux, Frankfurt, Milan, Geneva, almost any important town on the continent of Europe, I find very striking after an absence of any duration in foreign parts. London is shabby by contrast with Edinburgh, with Aberdeen, with Exeter, with Liverpool, with a bright little town like Bury St. Edmunds. London is shabby in contrast with New York, with Boston, with Philadelphia. In detail one would say it can rarely fail to be a disappointing piece of shabbiness to a stranger from any of those places. There is nothing shabbier than Drury Lane in Rome itself. The meanness of Regent Street set against the great line of boulevards in Paris is as striking as the abortive ugliness of Trafalgar Square set against the gallant beauty of the Place de la Concorde. London is shabby by daylight and shabbier by gaslight. No Englishman knows what gaslight is until he sees the Rue de Rivoli and the Palais Royal after dark. The mass of London people are shabby. The absence of distinctive dress has no doubt something to do with it. The porters of the vintner's company, the draymen and the butchers, are about the only people who wear distinctive dresses, and even these do not wear them on holidays. We have nothing which for cheapness, cleanness, convenience, or picturesqueness can compare with the belted blouse. As to our women, next Easter or Whitsuntide, look at the bonnets at the British Museum or the National Gallery, and think of the pretty white French cap, the Spanish mantilla, or the Genoese mezzero. Probably there are not more second-hand clothes sold in London than in Paris, and yet the mass of the London population have a second-hand look which is not to be detected on the mass of the Parisian population. I think this is mainly because a Parisian workman does not in the least trouble himself about what is worn by a Parisian idler, but dresses in the way of his own class, and for his own comfort. In London, on the contrary, the fashions descend. You never fully know how inconvenient or ridiculous a fashion is until you see it in its last descent. It was but the other day on a race-course that I observed four people in a barouche deriving great entertainment from the contemplation of four people on foot. The four people on foot were two young men and two young women. The four people in the barouche were two young men and two young women. The four young women were dressed in exactly the same style. The four young men were dressed in exactly the same style. Yet the two couples on wheels were as much amused by the two couples on foot as if they were quite unconscious of having themselves set those fashions, or of being at that very moment engaged in the display of them. Is it only in the matter of clothes that fashion descends here in London, and consequently in England, and thence shabbiness arises? Let us think a little and be just. The black country, round about Birmingham, is a very black country, but is it quite as black as it has been lately painted? An appalling accident happened at the People's Park near Birmingham this last July, when it was crowded with people from the black country, an appalling accident consequent on a shamefully dangerous exhibition. Did the shamefully dangerous exhibition originate in the moral blackness of the black country, and in the black people's peculiar love of the excitement attendant on great personal hazard, which they looked on at, but in which they did not participate? Light is much wanted in the black country. Oh, we are all agreed on that. But we must not quite forget the crowds of gentlefolks who set the shamefully dangerous fashion, either. 
we must not forget the enterprising directors of an institution vaunting mighty educational pretenses who made the low sensation as strong as they possibly could make it by hanging the blondin rope as high as they possibly could hang it all this must not be eclipsed in the blackness of the black country they reserved seats high up by the rope the cleared space below it so that no one should be smashed but the performer the pretense of slipping and falling off the baskets for the feet and the sack for the head the photographs everywhere and the virtuous indignation nowhere all this must not be wholly swallowed up in the blackness of the jet-black country whatsoever fashion is set in england is certain to descend this is a text for a perpetual sermon on care in setting fashions when you find a fashion low down look back for the time it will never be far off when it was the fashion high up this is the text for a perpetual sermon on social justice from imitations of ethiopian serenaders to imitations of princes coasts and waistcoats you will find the original model in st james parish when the serenaders become tiresome trace them beyond the black country when the coasts and waistcoats become insupportable refer them to their source in the upper toady regions gentlemen's clubs were once maintained for purposes of savage party warfare working men's clubs of the same day assumed the same character gentlemen's clubs became places of quite inoffensive recreation working men's clubs began to follow suit if working men have seemed rather slow to appreciate advantages of combination which have saved the pockets of gentlemen and enhanced their comforts it is because working men could scarcely for want of capital originate such combinations without help and because help has not been separable from that great impertinence patronage the instinctive revolt of his spirit against patronage is a quality much to be respected in the english working man it is the base of the base of his best qualities nor is it surprising that he should be unduly suspicious of patronage and sometimes resentful of it even where it is not seeing what a flood of washy talk has been let loose on his devoted head or with what complacent condescension the same devoted head has been smoothed and patted it is a proof to me of his self-control that he never strikes out pugilistically right and left when addressed as one of my friends or my assembled friends that he does not become inappeasable and run amuck like a malay whenever he sees a biped in broadcloth getting on a platform to talk to him that any pretense of improving his mind does not instantly drive him out of his mind and cause him to toss his obliging patron like a mad bull for how often have I heard the unfortunate working-man lectured as if he were a little charity child, humid as to his nasal development, strictly literal as to his catechism, and called by Providence to walk all his days, in a station in life represented on festive occasions by a mug of warm milk and water and a bun? What pop-guns of jokes have these ears tingled to hear let off at him? What asinine sentiments, what impotent conclusions, what spelling-book moralities? what adaptations of the orator's insufferable tediousness to the assumed level of his understanding if his sledge-hammers his spades and pickaxes his saws and chisels his paint-pots and brushes his forges furnaces and engines the horses that he drove at his work and the machines that drove him at his work were all toys in one little paper box and he the baby who played with them he could not have been discoursed to more impertinently and absurdly than i have heard him discoursed to times innumerable Consequently, not being a fool or a fawner, he has come to acknowledge his patronage by virtually saying, Let me alone. If you understand me no better than that, sir and madam, let me alone. You mean very well, I dare say, but I don't like it, and I won't come here again to have any more of it. 
Whatever is done for the comfort and advancement of the working man must be so far done by himself as that it is maintained by himself. And there must be in it no touch of condescension, no shadow of patronage. In the great working districts this truth is studied and understood. When the American Civil War rendered it necessary, first in Glasgow and afterwards in Manchester, that the working people should be shown how to avail themselves of the advantages derivable from the system, and from the combination of numbers, in the purchase and the cooking of their food, this truth was above all things borne in mind. The quick consequence was that suspicion and reluctance were vanquished, and that the effort resulted in an astonishing and a complete success. Such thoughts passed through my mind on a July morning of this summer, as I walked towards Commercial Street, not Uncommercial Street, Whitechapel. The Glasgow and Manchester system had been lately set a-going there, by certain gentlemen who felt an interest in its diffusion, and I had been attracted by the following handbill, printed on rose-coloured paper. Self-supporting cooking depot for the working classes. Commercial Street, Whitechapel, where accommodation is provided for dining comfortably, three hundred persons at a time. Open from 7 a.m. till 7 p.m. Prices. All articles of the best quality. Cup of tea or coffee, one penny. Bread and butter, one penny. Bread and cheese, one penny. Slice of bread, one half penny or one penny. Boiled egg, one penny. Ginger beer, one penny. The above articles always ready. Besides the above may be had from twelve to three o'clock. Bowl of scotch broth, one penny. Bowl of soup, one penny. Plate of potatoes, one penny. Plate of minced beef, twopence. Plate of cold beef, twopence. Plate of cold ham, twopence. Plate of plum pudding or rice, one penny. As the economy of cooking depends greatly upon the simplicity of the arrangements with which a great number of persons can be served at one time, the upper room of this establishment will be especially set apart for a public dinner every day, from twelve till three o'clock, consisting of the following dishes. Bowl of broth or soup, plate of cold beef or ham, plate of potatoes, plum pudding or rice. Fixed charge, fourpence halfpenny, the daily papers provided. Nota bene, this establishment is conducted on the strictest business principles with the full intention of making it self-supporting, so that everyone may frequent it with a feeling of perfect independence. The assistance of all frequenting the depot is confidently expected in checking anything and interfering with the comfort, quiet, and regularity of the establishment. Please do not destroy this handbill, but hand it to some other person whom it may interest. The self-supporting cooking depot not a very good name, and one would rather give it an English one, had hired a newly-built warehouse that had found to let. Therefore, it was not established in premises specially designed for the purpose. But at a small cost they were exceedingly well adapted to the purpose, being light, well-ventilated, clean, and cheerful. They consisted of three large rooms. That on the basement story was the kitchen, that on the ground floor was the general dining-room, that on the floor above was the upper room referred to in the handbill where the public dinner at fourpence halfpenny a head was provided every day. The cooking was done with much economy of space and fuel, by American cooking-stoves, and by young women not previously brought up as cooks. The walls and pillars of the two dining-rooms were agreeably brightened with ornamental colours. The tables were capable of accommodating six or eight persons each. The attendants were all young women, becomingly and neatly dressed, and dressed alike. I think the whole staff was female, with the exception of the steward or manager. 
My first inquiries were directed to the wages of this staff, because if any establishment claiming to be self-supporting live upon the spoliation of anybody or anything, or eke out a feeble existence by poor mouths and beggarly resources, as too many so-called mechanics institutions do, I make bold to express my uncommercial opinion that it has no business to live and had better die. It was made clear to me by the account-books that every person employed was properly paid. My next inquiries were directed to the quality of the provisions purchased and to the terms on which they were bought. It was made equally clear to me that the quality was the very best and that all bills were paid weekly. My next inquiries were directed to the balance-sheet for the last two weeks, only the third and fourth of the establishment's career. It was made equally clear to me that after everything bought was paid for, and after each week was charged with its full share of wages, rent, and taxes, depreciation of plant in use, and interest on capital at the rate of four per cent per annum, the last week had yielded a profit in round numbers, one pound ten, and the previous week a profit of six pounds ten. By this time I felt that I had a healthy appetite for the dinners. It had just struck twelve, and a quick succession of faces had already begun to appear at a little window in the wall of the partition space, where I sat looking over the books. Within this little window, like a pay-box at a theatre, a neat and brisk young woman presided to take money and issue tickets. Everyone coming in must take a ticket, either the fourpence halfpenny ticket for the upper room, the most popular ticket, I think, or a penny ticket for a bowl of soup, or as many penny tickets as he or she chose to buy. For three penny tickets one had quite a wide range of choice, a plate of cold beef and potatoes, or a plate of cold ham and potatoes, or a plate of hot minced beef and potatoes, or a bowl of soup, bread and cheese, and a plate of plum pudding. Touching what they should have, some customers on taking their feats fell into a reverie, became mildly distracted, postponed decision, and said in bewilderment they would think of it. One old man I noticed when I sat among the tables in the lower room, who was startled by the bill affair, and sat contemplating it as if it were something of a ghostly nature. The decision of the boys was as rapid as their execution, and always included pudding. There were several women among the diners, and several clerks and shopmen. There were carpenters and painters from the neighboring buildings under repair, and there were nautical men, and there were, as one diner observed to me, some of most sorts. Some were solitary, some came two together, some dined in parties of three or four or six. The latter talked together, but assuredly no one was louder than at my club in Pall Mall. One young fellow whistled in rather a shrill manner while he waited for his dinner, but I was gratified to observe that he did so in evident defiance of my uncommercial individuality, quite agreeing with him on consideration that I had no business to be there unless I dined like the rest. I went in, as the phrase is, for fourpence halfpenny. The room of the fourpence halfpenny banquet had, like the lower room, a counter in it, on which were ranged a great number of cold portions ready for distribution. Behind this counter the fragrant soup was steaming in deep cans, and the best cooked of potatoes were fished out of similar receptacles. Nothing to eat was touched with this hand. Every waitress had her own tables to attend to. As soon as she saw a new customer seat himself at one of her tables, she took from the counter all his dinner, his soup, potatoes, meat, and pudding, piled it up dexterously in her two hands, set it before him, and took his ticket. This serving of the whole dinner at once had been found greatly to simplify the business of attendance, and was also popular with the customers, who were thus enabled to vary the meal by varying the routine of the dishes, beginning with soup to-day, putting soup in the middle to-morrow, putting soup at the end the day after to-morrow, and ringing similar changes on meat and pudding. 
The rapidity with which every newcomer got served was remarkable, and the dexterity with which the waitresses, quite new to the art a month before, discharged their duty, was as agreeable to see as the neat smartness with which they wore their dress and had dressed their hair. If I seldom saw better waiting, so I certainly never ate better meat, potatoes, or pudding. And the soup was an honest and stout soup with rice and barley in it, and little matters for the teeth to touch, as had been observed to me by my friend below stairs already quoted. The dinner-service, too, was neither conspicuously hideous for high art nor for low art, but was of a pleasant and pure appearance. Concerning the viands and their cookery, one last remark. I dined at my club in Pall Mall aforesaid, a few days afterwards, for exactly twelve times the money, and not half as well. The company thickened after one o'clock struck, and changed pretty quickly. Although experience of the place had been so recently attainable, and although there was still considerable curiosity out in the street and about the entrance, the general tone was as good as could be, and the customers fell easily into the ways of the place. It was clear to me, however, that they were there to have what they paid for, and to be on an independent footing. To the best of my judgment they might be patronized out of the building in a month. With judicious visiting, and by dint of being questioned, read to, and talked at, they might even be got rid of, for the next quarter of a century, in half the time. This disinterested and wise movement is fraught with so many wholesome changes in the lives of the working people, and with so much good in the way of overcoming that suspicion which our own unconscious impertinence has engendered, that it is scarcely gracious to criticize details as yet, the rather because it is indisputable that the managers of the Whitechapel establishment most thoroughly feel that they are upon their honor with their customers, as to the minutest points of administration. But although the American stoves cannot roast, they can surely boil one kind of meat as well as another, and need not always circumscribe their boiling talents within the limits of ham and beef. The most enthusiastic admirer of those substantials would probably not object to occasional inconstancy in respect of pork and mutton, or especially in cold weather, to a little innocent trifling with Irish stews, meat pies, and toads in holes. Another drawback on the Whitechapel establishment is the absence of beer. Regarded merely as a question of policy, it is very impolitic, as having a tendency to send the working man to the public-house where gin is reported to be sold. But there is a much higher ground on which this absence of beer is objectionable. It expresses distrust of the working man. It is a fragment of that old mantle of patronage in which so many estimable thugs, so darkly wandering up and down the moral world, are sworn to muffle him. Good beer is a good thing for him, he says, and he likes it. The depot could give it to him good and he now gets it bad. Why does the depot not give it him good? Because he would get drunk. Why does the depot not let him have a pint with his dinner, which would not make him drunk? Because he might have had another pint, or another two pints before he came. Now this distrust is an affront, is exceedingly inconsistent with the confidence the managers express in their handbills, and is a timid stopping short upon the straight highway. It is unjust and unreasonable also. It is unjust because it punishes the sober man for the vice of the drunken man. It is unreasonable because any one at all experienced in such things knows that the drunken workman does not get drunk where he goes to eat and drink, but where he goes to drink, expressly to drink. To suppose that the working man cannot state this question to himself quite as plainly as I state it here is to suppose that he is a baby, and is again to tell him in the old, wearisome, condescending, patronizing way that he must be goody-puddy and do as he is toldy-poldy, and not be a manny-panny or a voter-poter, but fold his handy-pandies and be a childy-pildy. 
I found, from the accounts of the Whitechapel self-supporting cooking depot, that every article sold in it, even at the prices I have quoted, yields a certain small profit. Individual speculators are of course already in the field, and are of course already appropriating the name. The classes for whose benefit the real depots are designed will distinguish between the two kinds of enterprise. End of chapter 25